When you think about the time Jesus had with his disciples just before his trial and crucifixion, what is it that you think about? Most people think about the Last Supper, and that's what's been memorialized in great art throughout the centuries and in the services that we have before Easter. But there's more to it than that. Hi, I'm Yvonne Print, and welcome to Bible 805. Though the Last Supper is extremely important, it's only one part of the teaching and the time that Jesus had with his disciples. And in this part two of our special Easter lessons, we'll look at the passage in John 13 through 17 that fills in what happened after the meal until the time that Jesus was arrested. Now, before we get into the rest of the story, let's review Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. Because, as I said earlier, this was extremely important. So let me just read to you again what happened. In Matthew 26, 26, and 27, it says, In the middle of the meal, Jesus took a loaf, and after blessing it, he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples. Take and eat this, he said. It is my body. Then he took a cup, and after thanking God, he gave it to them with these words, Drink this, all of you, for it is my blood, the blood of the new agreement, the new covenant, shed to set many free from their sins. And this is, although this is in Matthew, pretty much the same story is told in Mark and in Luke. Now, the new covenant that he's talking about, that's going to be instituted with Jesus' death, the reason he calls it new is that unlike the previous centuries of the sacrifice of lambs, that was part of the old covenant. Covenant, the covenant, the agreement that God made with his people that this would cover their sins until Jesus came to be the final sacrifice that paid the penalty for sins. Now again, this is incredibly important and we need to remember it, but it's not all that Jesus talks about with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Now, what I, what we're going to share, what we're going to talk about a little bit more comes from the book of John. And the book of John is really different than the other Gospels in what it tells about these last hours of Jesus' life. The first three, just a little bit of background now on the Gospels themselves, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're what are called synoptic Gospels. Now, here's a good definition um, from the web on them. Quote, Despite their unique qualities, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, share many of the same accounts of Christ, often shared in the same order and with the same wording. Because of their similar perspectives on Jesus' ministry, together they're known as the Synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic comes from the Greek word synoptikos, meaning able to be seen together. Now, as you can tell by just the terminology, they all pretty much tell the same story. Now, the dating of these Gospels, if we work backwards from Paul's death, this is going to make sense in a minute, we know that he died about 64 AD, and this comes from both secular and biblical sources. Now, we know, too, that the book of Acts was written a number of years prior to his death because it only talks about his first imprisonment in Rome, not his second one, which the book of Second Timothy tells us about. That happened a number of years after Acts was finished. And we also know that Luke wrote his gospel 
prior to writing the book of Acts. So even though we don't know the exact dates, we know that the Synoptic Gospels were written sometime between the late 30s to the 50s AD. Now this is important for lots of reasons. First of all, just it shows us that these accounts of Jesus' life were written within the lifetime of many people who knew him. There were a lot of eyewitnesses around. There were people who could check the facts. We have a very solid, reliable basis for our trust in the Synoptic Gospels that they tell us the true story of Jesus. But now the book of John is different. And we'll talk a little bit now about why it's different. It was written later than the Synoptic Gospels. All of the critics agree on that. Now there's a lot of disagreement though on exactly when it was written, but for the very best evidence, I think, points to the fact that it was written prior to 70 AD. Now I have a link on the website. In fact, I've got a lot more links on the website in this lesson that I do on many other things because there's a lot of things that I will either read you quotes out of or refer to, but I've got them well documented for you on the website. But regardless of exactly when it was written close to 70 AD, AD. All commentators agree that it was written later, obviously. Over 90% of what's in John's Gospel is not found in the other Gospels. And though he's much more selective in what he talks about, he goes into a lot greater depth than the other Gospels do on precisely the things that Jesus said and what he was thinking and the, the communications that he really wanted to give to his disciples. One of the things, too, that many commentators say is that because this was written later and because the Gospels were all widely circulated, people knew about Jesus' life, John does not repeat many of the historical details that are in the other Gospels. For example, he does not go through the same um, retelling of the Lord's Supper like the other Gospels do. In fact, the, sec the section that we're going to talk about, John 13, opens with the meal in progress, The what we quote-unquote call the Last Supper, part of it had probably already taken place because it says that the meal was in progress. And then Jesus goes on to talk to them around the table and apparently on a walk that they took towards the garden where he's going to be betrayed. And he also takes time to pray with them. It's really an extraordinary section. And I encourage you to take time this week or as soon as you can to read through it carefully and prayerfully because there's a lot in it. But what the reason that I, I'm encouraging you to do that is I mistakenly thought that in two weeks I could go through all of the materials in it. That was a huge mistake on my part. There is so much here and I, I really couldn't do it justice. So I did what I did last week that I think was very important. I'll go over that again in a minute. But we're only going to be able to talk about a short section of John 15 in this this lesson. And one of the main reasons is I want very much to focus on application. Last week we talked about how we talked the whole topic was how do you love Jesus? And we learned that we love Jesus by obeying his commands. We know that that was really that's really important because Jesus said, well, he told us that numerous times. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. A little bit later, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. A little bit later, he repeats this several times. And he also says in the connection of, of, of his conversation with them, he says, you're supposed to do this because that's what I did with my father. 
I love God, my Father, and so I carried out His commands for my life, and now I want you to show your love for me by living the way I ask you to live. Now, in every area of our life, we're confronted with challenges of what to do. And what Jesus is telling us in this passage, and what I want to focus on, is that in every one of these circumstances, we have the opportunity to show Jesus and the people that we interact with that we follow him, that we're not living for ourselves, that we love him by what we do. For example, one of the areas that I want to talk about a little bit, because I was confronted with looking at myself on some stuff on this just this last week or so, where I got really angry about some things, and I just, I I did not handle it well. And so I've been looking at um, my anger and at, at different things that happen. And it's so easy, I think, for all of us. And it can be different things in, in different situations. Maybe a store clerk does something wrong or a family member or something happens at our job. And we tell ourselves, I have a right to be angry. And so we really lash out. Well, does that help? No, it doesn't. (laughs) It really doesn't help. Anger is never a welcome emotion, particularly not for the person experiencing it. I have never had somebody that I got angry with because I wanted to kind of straighten them out or whatever say to me, oh, thank you so much for getting angry with me. I can now see that my dreadful mistake in offending you, and I can see from your explosion that you are a follower of Jesus. Well, first of all, we know that nobody's going to thank us for getting angry. And second, they will in no way realize that we follow Jesus when we express our anger to him. So what should we do? How should we act? Not only in that situation, but in many situations. How do we know what Jesus' commands are for us? Well, we need to look at his word and what he says in this specific example about anger and in general how to react to challenging situations. Now, personally, this really is a challenge for me. And I'm hoping that some of you that know me now think, oh, really, I did not know all that about you. But anger has been a real issue in my life. My father was a drill sergeant. A lot of you know that. But all my life, I've struggled with my mouth and with anger issues. I think the Lord's helping me a lot in it, but I used to str- I struggled so much in the past with it, and I was not successful at all, that my mother used to say to me, you know, with a mouth like yours, no nice man is ever going to want to marry you. Now, I'm not sure whether it was God's grace in helping me to make progress in this area or his sense of humor, but I did marry a very nice man. And not only that, um, he's a bivocational pastor. So, uh, I, you know, God can work miracles. But seriously, I wanted to share that because what I'm talking about isn't just something that's theory to me. And I want to share with you, if God's word is what helps us obey his commands, some of the things that I've actually used to deal with my anger issues. One of the things, one verse that I repeat to myself all the time, <laughs> I really do, it's in James 1.20 where it says, the wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God. Another translation uh, says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, I must have memorized it early on in the King James because I I would get really upset with something and then I say to myself, the wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God. The wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God. And I just remember that wanting to explode or wanting to get angry or wanting to whatever, that will not accomplish 
actually both what I want it to to accomplish and it certainly doesn't please the Lord. And I always remember too in those situations the other thing I remind myself of is that wonderful passage in Philippians 2 where it says Jesus who was in very nature God humbled himself. And I think if he being God, I mean, he made everything. And he humbled himself to come to earth and ultimately to die on the cross. Sort of what right do I have in in many of these situations? Some other verses that I have, and the reason that I'm sharing these with you is because one of the things that I do to remind myself of these things, and I'm actually picking it up and looking at it right now, is I write down verses on the things that I'm working on, on those little bound um, notebooks. They're like um, little index card things that are all bound together. And I actually have one sitting right by my computer. I should probably take a little little picture of it for you. But um, I have verses on there. And then when I have time in between, maybe I'm waiting for a computer program to load or I'm whatever, I will look at it and I will, will work on these verses and I will just read them over and just say, Lord, you know, help me to remember these things. And let me share with you some of the ones that, that I have on my little cards. Um, there's a lot of verses in Proverbs that are about anger. Um, in Proverbs 29, 11, it says, Fools vent their anger. This is in the New Living. But the wise quietly hold it back. And I don't want to be foolish. <laughs> so, you know, it, it says, that's what fools do. Um, and then in the message, it says, The mouth of a good person is, a, this is in Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of a good person is a deep, life-giving well, but the mouth of the wicked is a dark cave of abuse. Um, in Proverbs fifteen eighteen, it says, A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but one who is patient calms a quarrel. And we can look at these verses in Proverbs as kind of descriptions as what will happen. But then there's Colossians 3, 8 that kind of smacks me in the face where it, it's a flat-out command. And it said, But now... You must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. God just says, get rid of them. They should not be a part of your life. And it's something that I work on. Um, we, I memorize these things. I think about them. I really try to have this in front of my mind. And I, and I don't always, <laughs> I don't, I'm not always successful. I can get kind of angry sometimes. But I do feel like I'm making progress in this area. Going over these Bible verses helps so much because particularly in our world today, it's sort of a big deal and you're considered, I don't know what, um, that it's okay to lose your temper and to stick up for yourself and to yell and to scream and to act out and to really act in ways that are just really not acceptable even for three-year-olds. But we see public figures doing that and we need to look at what God's Word says. That's always supposed to be our standard. And not only do we owe that to God because he is our Savior, he is our Lord, he is the creator of everything, but it's the best way to deal with that. Anger, I've realized, never accomplishes anything. People will either agree with me if I happen to be in a position over them, maybe with work or something like that, or they will just react very silently and 
become angry themselves or resentful or there's always a way that people can get back at you. Anger never accomplishes anything. So if I take anger off the table, I'm forced to look carefully at situations, at the people involved, and to pray for ways that deal with things that are pleasing to the Lord. Now that's a lot more work and it takes a lot more time, but that's what I think really putting the words that Jesus says in his final words, that if we love him, we'll keep his commands, that's really what it's all about. That's an expanded application of our lesson last week. And as you can see from the time that that took, we only have time to go over just part of John 15. But I trust that what I'm going to be sharing with you will be really useful before we start back in next week to our overview of the Bible. Now, as John 14 ends, Jesus promises his disciples peace, and he promises them that the Holy Spirit will be their guide. Now, it's kind of interesting, just a little thing that happens there, because he says, now, let's be going. Now, it's appropriate to assume that Jesus gets up, and they're all walking together on their way to Gethsemane. And he's teaching them as he walks along. And I would imagine that that's how he taught many, many times over the last three years. And the disciples, they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, he's told them, but they obviously weren't paying attention. But as he's going along, and he's teaching teaching them just as usual and he starts out with a very familiar analogy where he says I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that will be even more fruitful you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you remain in me as I also remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me I'm the vine you're the branches if you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing if you do not remain in me you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples now throughout the Old Testament the vine and this image of God being the gardener and and just Israel being a vine was used again and again, but it wasn't always in a positive way. Oftentimes Israel was a was a bad vine that was growing wrong and it had to be cut here and all kinds of things like that. But Jesus kind of takes up this analogy that they're familiar with and he refines it where he says, I am the vine. And he's saying that, that he is the source of all our life, all our growth, everything. And then he redefines the branches no longer as just Israel, but as his disciples. And then he's going to talk about some things that they actually knew about vines. And some of these analogies I get from William Barclay's commentary in the Precept Austin um, part of the web, where he talks about the vine and the branches. And the vine that he was talking about, the in Israel, it grew very profusely, but it produced two kinds of branches. It had branches that were useful 
to produce fruit and then branches that weren't. And I would assume these were just the little uh, spurs or just maybe things that helped hold it up or whatever. But to really cultivate good grapes, as any of you have seen that have seen how vineyards grow, they're up on trellises. And so a lot of this useless stuff that just really does nothing, it needs to be cut out. It needs to be pruned. And it's always been like that. Now, what's interesting about this wood that was pruned away is it was absolutely good for nothing. In Israel during those days, all Jews were required to to bring wood several times a year to the temple to keep the sacrificial fires burning. But the wood cuttings from the vine were so useless that they could not ever even be part of these offerings. They were just thrown away and burnt. Now, the application here is really obvious, that if we want to live productive Christian lives, there will often be some things that Jesus will need to prune out of our lives. When we talk about pruning, when we talk about something being cut out of our lives. That is not a fun subject to get into, and we become fearful at that point. What is he going to take away from us? What's he going to prune out of our lives? Now, I want to talk about something in right now, and then really I'll, I'll pick it up near the end of the podcast also, that I th- that's a really, really important concept that I want to share with you. And that is what I call the challenge of forever versus today. Now listen carefully. The Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And I've sometimes said that I think that in part that means everybody believes that there's an afterlife, and that's probably true. But we make the mistake of thinking that eternity is something that starts after we die. But if we're believers, eternity is now. We are part of the eternal life that Jesus gives us now. One of the things that I think this means is that the dreams and desires that we have, a lot of them will always be beyond our earthly abilities. And the fact that we dream in this way, I think, is something that God's given us. It's the ability to dream just huge dreams. Maybe it's something that will be carried on by the people that come after us. Maybe it's, I just don't know, but but I know we all have these great ideas. There's so many things we want to do, so many things we want to experience. And, of course, I have to stop right here and say that is for those of us in this world who have the luxury of being being able to do things beyond basic survival. And we do well to acknowledge and remember that, that much of the world cannot dream anything other than where they're going to get their next meal. And so we must, whenever we have dreams, whenever we have desires, whenever we have these these huge overall things we want to do, we must be humbly thankful for just the fact that we, we have those. But given the situation that we are in, how do we live with the competing realities of big dreams but in a world that will be constantly frustrating to us. What I think we need to have set firmly in our hearts is that if we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, that our existence is eternal and heaven is our future, but how we live now is very important. But 
because we have an eternal future, we don't have to pack everything into right now. We can't. We'll just be constantly frustrated if we do. Jesus promised, in the world you'll have troubles. He did that in this section a little bit later. But he also says, I've overcome the world. So what do we do when challenges come? I'll get into some specific suggestions in just a minute. But right now, I want you just in all of your life, when you when you really feel frustrated, maybe a relationship isn't everything that you want. Maybe you've lost something. Maybe you can't do something that you've always wanted to do. You, you don't have to pack it into this life. We don't know all of the things that God has planned for us. But while we're in this life, Jesus wants us to be good disciples. And so how can we do that? How can we make our dreams, our priorities line up with being a good disciple? Jesus says the way we can do that is to bear much fruit. And that's how we'll show the world that we're his disciples. Now, how do we do that? Well, step one, Jesus says that he'll make us clean through the words that he's spoken to us. It's kind of like we need to take a bath before we do the work that we're called to do. We get up in the morning, we shower, we get dressed, we look good before we attack the day. And it's really kind of like that in our Christian lives. The whole theme of cleanliness before service is repeated throughout the Old Testament. And it's kind of interesting because Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, 1, groups a whole bunch of verses out of the Old Testament in this. And and let me read it to you because then he makes a really interesting point. He says, God has said, I will live among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He is sort of mashing together verses from Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Samuel. Very interesting how he puts them all together. And then Paul goes on to say, therefore, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In this passage where, again, Jesus is about to go to his death, he says, I want you to be clean through the word that I've given you. And cleansing is so important because it will really determine how useful we can be in our service. In 2 Timothy 2.20, it says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, and holy means set apart, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. You see, God's word, as Jesus is telling us in this time before he's going to leave his disciples, it's kind of like the soap. You know, he says, you're made clean through the word that I've given to you. And once again, and this is this is a constant theme in my ministry, and I'm going to keep repeating this until the Lord takes me home. You've got to be in God's word. You've got to know what it says. You have to know how God thinks. You have to know his commands and know his promises. You've got to do that because it's what tells us the clear and right way to live. If we fill our thoughts with it, it will wash away our sins. If in the um, olden times, well, I don't know, 
decades ago, they used to talk about besetting sins. And these are things we just couldn't seem to get over. And God's word will really help us conquer these things. Because as we fill our thoughts with God's word and we, we try to focus on that and obeying that, instead of, for example, thinking about the wrong that someone did or whatever, it's kind of like new growth that pushes dead leaves off of trees. Um, my husband has often talked about this. He's, he's used it when he's teaching where he says that it's really hard sometimes to change a habit. But he's, he said he, he realized when he, he grew up in Michigan and sometimes in the spring there would be trees that still had the old leaves on them and they were just kind of hanging there dead and ugly looking and he said it was that the tree couldn't seem to get rid of them until the new growth came and just pushed them out of the way and that's what God's word can do for us there might be things in our life that we really want to change we just don't know how but when we fill our lives with God's word really thinking about it and making that a priority talking about it with friends learning about it that's when a lot of the old growth in our lives will be pushed away now in addition to doing what you can to be clean there's some pruning that might need to be done Um, and again pruning is hard but there's more to being a disciple than just avoiding sin A disciple of Jesus should be like Jesus. And the overwhelming message of this passage is that Jesus, of the whole section of 13 through 17, he lived to equip others, to encourage others. He was just a few hours away from horrible torture and death. But he didn't focus on himself. He focused on the people around him. So it just seems to make sense that a life of serving Jesus would be someone who really lives their life in serving others. Now, you might not be doing bad things, but what is the focus of your life? What in some ways might keep you from serving others. This is the pruning part. There might be some areas that are perfectly good. They're not sin. They're not evil. They're morally neutral. But God cuts them out of your life for a season. Maybe it's a hobby that's too too time-consuming or money-consuming. Maybe it's a lifestyle. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's some things that are really admired in your social world. But you know, you kind of have that sneaking suspicion that if you weren't involved in that so much, or if that wasn't so important to you, you'd have more time for the things of God. It can be incredibly painful to go through pruning. We may have an attitude of, well, I deserve this, or because of my position I have to have this, or people should really recognize who I am, or maybe I've lost so much in the past I just can't bear to lose something else that we hold really tightly to whatever it is. But first of all, just from a cynical viewpoint, I hate to tell you this, but nobody cares nearly as much about your position or your pain as you do. So part of it's kind of a we need to get over ourselves. But once again, we need to go back to the long view of being an eternal creature. And in the light of eternity, serving as a disciple of Jesus in our present assignment, What might he be pruning out of our lives so 
that I can produce more fruit. God does not prune us in our lives to be mean to us. We don't become Christians so that our every earthly dream can be fulfilled. No matter what some current technology or some churches tell you, that is not why you're saved. Pruning is important so we bear fruit. Now let's look at a, a little more at the importance of fruit. There's lots of wonderful fruits that God wants to produce in our lives. First of all, fruitfulness is a sign of true salvation. In the parable of the sower, it was only the good seed that took root and it says it produced fruit many times over. In the Bible, people coming to know the Lord because of our lives or influence, preaching, teaching, or just in the kindness that we do helping them get closer to Jesus. That is often one of the ways that fruit is talked about. But also important in our lives is the fruit of the Spirit, where it talks about how the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now that's in the NIV. The message says it a little bit differently, and I really like this. It says, but what happens when we live God's way? He He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like an affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Wouldn't we all want that? A few notes now about fruit overall. Remember, fruit does not spring from the ground fully mature. It can take months, it can take years for a fruit tree to produce good fruit, for a vine to produce good grapes. Sometimes our gentleness or our self-control or our anger issues or whatever it is. I was thinking about, I think, you know, sometimes my progress in these things, it kind of looks like this wormy half-grown apple that drops to the ground too soon because it didn't stay connected. Um... It's, it's not the red, juicy, mature fruit that it will be someday, but it's still fruit. Um, and oftentimes I, I, I helped for a while at this program in our church called Kids Club, and they had this w- wonderful little song in there that was, God's not finished with me yet. God's not finished with me yet. God's not finished with me yet. By his power I can change, change, change. God's not finished with me yet. And I still sing that to myself all the time. So don't be too hard on yourself if you don't feel that you're really producing mature spiritual fruit in your life. But at the same time, don't be too easy on yourself. It doesn't hurt to be a fruit inspector at times. And I think particularly, not of other people, of ourselves. In Matthew seven twenty, it says, we'll be known by our fruits. And what kind of fruits are we producing? I was thinking about it because I'm, I'm working on losing weight now and I'm being successful. I'm quite excited about that. I finally found a program that works for me very slow but making progress. But we keep track of things like we log calories, we keep track of how we're spending our money, uh, some people keep track of their schedules to use their time more efficiently. But do we ever keep track of some of the ways that we might want to grow spiritually? Now, 
as I was thinking about this, I remembered that there are uh, church history has various famous Christians that have set out to do these sort of rules or um, recommendations, sort of checklists of, of how we might live in ways that please the Lord. And one of them was St. Benedict. He was the founder of the Benedictines. And by the way, I'll have both of these again on the website. But he had his, his Benedictine rule, and he has just these different ways that we're supposed to live. He says, first, love God with your whole heart, soul, and strength. And then he gets into very specific things. He said, not to be a great eater, not to be drowsy, not to be slothful, not to be a murmurer, not to be a detractor, to put one's trust in God. This one I really like. He says, not to desire to be called holy before one is, but to be holy first, that one may be truly so called to fulfill daily the commands of God by works. And one of his last ones, never to despair of God's mercy. Wonderful checklist for us. And then Jonathan Edwards had his resolutions. And these are probably a little better known. But he had these resolutions that he said he would read each week. He was a great Puritan preacher. And he said, um, just some of them, I'll just jump in. And again, I'll have them on the website. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. To live with all my might while I do live. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do were it the last hour of my life. Speaking of the shortness of time, we've run out of time on this podcast. There's so much more, again, in it in John 13 through 17. Please do take time to read it. And next week, we're going to be jumping back into the history of the Bible in the Old Testament. But these are some things that will help you so much in your day-to-day life. Well, we've learned just a brief review. We've learned that in the first week that we love Jesus by keeping his commands. We learn his commands from his word. That he wants to make us clean through his word. And then, once we're in that place, he will show us what needs to be pruned away in our life so that we can be fruitful Christians. And if while this pruning is taking place, I want to encourage you that if some dreams must die, If you lose hobbies, careers, homes, people, there's a lot of things that can be pruned out of our lives. If we take the long view, I truly believe, and I don't have, you know, chapter and verse to support this, but I really believe that every good dream that Jesus gives us, if it's from him, if he takes us from us for a short time now, He will fulfill the core of those dreams, the reality of those dreams, more wonderfully than we can ever imagine in His time, in His way, and in His eternal plan for us. Just two more little things. I want to read you a couple of quotes, and again, I'll have these on the website, that have helped me develop that long view of life. The first one is a little plaque my grandmother gave me when I was a little child. I've always kept it, and it says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then I want to read you a poem that I found in college in InterVarsity Magazine. I cut it out and it's quite tattered and torn, but it is something that has really influenced my view of life and eternity. And it's entitled Coming of Age. It was written by a woman named Diane Bradley. One day I will walk around the sun and turn and touch Orion's belt with more than hands.
I will survey the splendors of Andromeda, understanding all I see. Then Alpha Centauri will beckon me, and surely I will go, for the hand that builds in light years has rested, torn and bloody upon me. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, and I have a lot more of them than usual. They are in downloadable PDF format, and there's quite a few other resources on the www.bible805.com website. Please do sign up for the newsletter. I am now doing what I've promised I would do. I'm trying to add additional material, blogs, other things, um, resources, recommendations. They're going to be coming bit by bit, but they're things that I hope will help you grow in your Christian life. And please do tell your friends about this podcast and encourage them to listen to learn God's Word. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.